Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome to the Dell Wamsley Radio Show. <laughs> Dell challenges the status quo, questions everything, and empowers you to return to your core beliefs to make your life better. If you're ready to hear the truth and get your roadmap to the lifestyle you really want, the next hour will change your life. And now your host, self-made millionaire, national award-winning investor of the year, CEO and founder of Lifestyles Unlimited, Del Wamsley. Welcome to the Del Wamsley Radio Show, where the hype ends and the help begins. I'm your host, Del Wamsley, and as always, we're working on your financial freedom. My address, if you want to contact me, is askdell at l-u-i-n-c dot com. Askdell at l-u-i-n-c dot com. Dell at L-U-I-N-C.com. Today, my friends, I'm going to go to the mailbags and pull out emails I've been sent in the last couple of days or weeks. And um, I find that the email radio shows, when I do the emails, is one that is very difficult to do in many cases. Difficult for me because I have to draw down on other people's conversations, which is painful to do. You know, people entrust themselves to you to ask questions and Almost always the questions are asked in candor. Um, You know, with them, wherever they are in their life, believing whatever they believe, they're asking questions from that point of view. The challenge with that, as a mentor in this society, is that they're asking the wrong questions. They don't know the facts necessary to ask the right questions in many cases. Uh, Sometimes... When you look at what the problem is, the problem is not what they're asking. And you have to go and ask yourself, okay, what are they really asking? What is the real problem? Otherwise, you could answer a question, be perfectly honest about the answer, and yet give them the wrong advice. And that's the challenge. So today, I haven't done this in a long time, but I'm going to go into some tough ones. I'm going to start out with some easier ones. I'm going to let you build up your tolerance (laughs) because <laughs> it takes tolerance. And then if we have time, but we get to the end, I've got a couple real difficult ones where we're just going to have to dive in and hack away at them and see if we can make some sense of them. Uh, obviously, some people are good writers. Other people are not. I'm not a good writer. Um, I have easier for me to communicate orally than by writing. But still, when you look at sentences and sentence structure and the way they form their arguments is also interesting, which is another whole discussion level. But today, we're just going to try to start with some of the information, the facts. The first one, and by the way, I'm not giving out anybody's names today. Uh, some of these people would not care. Other people have explicitly asked me not to divulge who they are. So it's just easier not to tell anybody's name. And I'm just telling you all these are real emails. I'm not making this stuff up. In fact, these are too difficult to make up in some cases. What I want to focus on, though, is I want you to focus on the core beliefs, and also then the core messaging. Because some of the problems is the way I message things, the way my staff messages things, it comes across sounding too easy. And then 
other people hear that too easy and make come to the conclusion, well, it's got to be something for nothing. It's got to be, you know, not real. Well, it is real. And the messaging is very blunt in many cases. And sometimes when you see that we pick out great examples of what you can do in your life, people then either decide, well, is that every example works that well, uh, which would be a false assumption, and or they go, they're cherry picking one or two examples, and that there may be no other good ones and all the rest of them are bad. And that's not actually true either. There's sort of an average to all this, but problem with averages is, and I hate to state averages for number one, I don't track averages at all. It's just not what I do. Because I don't think an average means anything. If, if I go into a real estate deal and I make 100% return, and then you go do one poorly and you make 1% return or you lose 10%, the average is somewhere around 50. I didn't make 50%, I made 100. And you didn't at all make 50, you made nothing. And so what good is to tell you that the average is 50? Now, the median might be more accurate, say, okay, you know, if you look at half of all the deals we do being better and half all the deals we do as being worse, then a 50 as a median gives you some indication of the continuum on which this information can be assumed to be true at what level, right? And so that's a little bit better number, let's say. Obviously, the best number would be to have the information and the data of all these deals, but there's no way. And the reason for that is you have to understand Lifestyles is an education and mentoring program. We teach people how to do stuff. We help them go do it, but they're not our deals. We don't have any information about the deal past it being done. Once they get into it, we're relying on them to tell us and their partners, if there are partners in the deal, to tell us uh, how they're doing. And if they're doing well, great, and we celebrate it. And if they're doing poorly, then they should be asking for help when we get in there and help them try to turn it around. So having said all that, I just want to you know use that as sort of a backdrop to all this as we dig into these emails, right? So the first email says this. It says, I have roughly $100,000 to invest and $10,000 per month net income to replace. And he's, note here, use the term net income. Now, I don't know if that's really net income or not, but let's just assume it. he knows what net income means, which is that's after-tax income, okay? Uh, that means he's got, to, he's got to earn twelve to $14,000 a month, actually net $10,000 a month. My guess is he makes $10,000 a month, and net means that's what his paycheck is or his company pays him. But we don't know that, and so we won't assume that completely. Uh, but he needs to replace $10,000. Using the LU roadmap, Lifestyles Unlimited roadmap, is it possible to retire in five years or less based on these numbers? If so, what would you recommend as an investment strategy, EI single family and or multi-family or passive investing? Well, let's take the last question first. I could get you to a result with either one of those, any one of those three different ways to invest, either by single family or by being a owning your own multi-family, small multi-family IRO deal, or by being a part of a big deal. You will get there quicker by owning your own single family or your own IRO deals. Why is that? Because if you're a passive in somebody else's syndication, they're taking some portion of whatever the profit is. Now, in our deals, the largest amount of syndicator can take is 20% override. So that means for every dollar you would earn, he would be getting 20 cents of your dollar as an overriding pay for putting the deal together and managing the property. He also gets a management fee, which is a company that runs the property, actually runs the property. 
which may or may not be the same person. Could be the same person that was a syndicator. It could be another management company. So if you own your own property, you, number one, get rid of the override. Whether it's a single family or a small multifamily, you get rid of the override. That's a 20% increase in your profitability right away. So if you were going to make a 10% return, you're only going to make an 8. If you were going to make an 8 passively, you're going to make a 10. Now, if you were going to make a 100% return, you would only make 80. If you did it yourself, you'd make 100. So there you go. You can see that it makes a bit of a difference. But in the scheme of things, that 20% difference is probably going to mean an extra year or two for you to get where you want to be. Now let's take it one step further. What if you're going to be a lead investor, what we call lead investor? That's the syndicator, the guy or gal putting the deal together. Well, now you're making your own return on your money, whatever that is, 10, let's say 10% return on your cash flow and maybe 100% return over a couple of years on your investment. You not only get the full return on your investment because there's no override taken out of yours, and you get the override off the other people, which generally takes your investment return up much higher. I'll give you an example of a deal I did. I did a deal which was 320 units. Uh, we bought it at like $8,000 a door, and we turned around and sold it for like $35,000 a door. And the passive investors that were invested in the deal, I was the lead, the passive investors that were in the deal, uh, each made like a 185% return. It was a very, very high rate of return. We bought this thing for 50 cents on the dollar, and it was just a killer deal. It's probably one of the best deals I've ever done in my life. Blah, blah. Okay? Great deal. But I put in $100,000 and got back $1.3 million. So I made 1,300% return because on this massive mega million dollar deal, I owned 20% override, plus I owned another whatever percentage that I bought myself, I bought of the deal, my money in the deal. And so I made a massive amount of money. Now, when you get back to asking a question like this with this gentleman, you have to ask yourself, could he do that? Well, first of all, there's no deals that, well, I never say no. There's probably not any more deals out there like that right now. Uh, that was during the deep recession, 2008, 2009, that we did that deal. So there's probably not that high a rate of returns anymore. Secondly, could he do that deal like I did it? That's the second question. We'll be right back and we'll give the rest of the answer to this question. Welcome back. Now here's some more unconventional wisdom to set you free from the man on a mission to retire America one person at a time, Del Wamsley. Welcome back to Del Wamsley Radio Show. Today we're doing the emails from the last week or so. And uh, again, background, uh, we, we try to answer these questions First of all, I don't use anybody's names because we're getting into personal questions. Secondly, we try to answer them by getting deep into the question, not just a cursory surface answer. So the guy's question was, I have 100,000 vests. I need to get to 10,000 per month. Can I do that within a period of time, within five years? So the answer that I went back to him was, to throw off $10,000 a month, you're going to need 750 to a million dollars invested correctly. Now, if you take your $100,000 and double that in two years, and do it again two years later. Now you're at four years. You've gone from 100 to 200, 200 to 400. And you would do that by getting into very lucrative deals uh, that you get in, you turn around, you make them worth more. And if it's single family, you hold on to them and keep doing it. But if it's multifamily, you sell them or refinance and pull out the money and do it again type of deal. But at the end of four years, you're at $400,000, and that's not enough to get you there. You need two more years. 
I'm just pulling the number out of the air that we used to be able to make 400% return within two years. Then it got down to 200% return. Then it got down to 100% return. Uh, basically, about 50% a year is what we see on great deals. That's what the great deals do now. So if you could make 100% return in two years, uh, you'd go from 100 to 200, then 200 to 400 the next two years. And you'd really need two more years to go from 400 to 800 to get you into the uh, amount of invested capital that would be able to throw off $10,000 a month. So I said to him, look, give it a few more years or lower your cost of living. If your cost of living expectations are 10000 a month and you can get them down to just simply $7,000 a month, you can cut off and make it within five years. So it's just a simple uh, accounting of math once you understand the background behind what we're doing and what the question is. The next question is even a little simpler than that. It's a statement, first of all, but I thought there was something interesting thrown in. It says, many people tout the fiduciary standard, but they still get their fees if you lose your money. They still make money. The fiduciary standard doesn't mean they know what they're doing. Thank you for hitting on this point. Also reminds me of investments only open to accredited investors, new ways of ripping people off. A lot of pain and hatred in that statement, right? Obviously, he agrees with the fact that just because somebody tells you they're a fiduciary doesn't mean they're going to make you money. It means with the position that they're taking in the transaction, they are working for you. In fiduciary, they should be making sure that your benefits are more important than their benefit out of the transaction. Now, does that ever occur? Very infrequently. Very infrequently does a fiduciary actually worry more about you than they do themselves. They're out to make a living. That's what they're doing, okay? Does having a fiduciary position mean you know what you're doing? Not at all. Absolutely not at all. And then he brings up the thing about accredited investors. Those who don't know what an accredited investor is, there are deals out there, uh, syndications and private placements, that you cannot get into unless you're an accredited investor. Accredited investor means you make over $200,000 a year if you're single, $300,000 a year if you're married, have done that the last two years and will be able to prove you can do it within the next 12 months, or you're worth a million dollars, not counting your personal residence. Now, what is the significance of this? The government entities, SEC and so forth, they signify that if you have that much wealth, then you don't need to be protected by SEC rules. And you can go into the craziest, dumbest deals in the world because you should be smart enough to be able to ascertain whether or not they're a good place to put your money. And how do they come to that conclusion? Because you have money. You make enough money to be smart enough and or you have enough money to show that you've been smart enough about money in the past. And it's not going to kill you to lose some money in an investment. So hence, you can get into deals that are not protected as strongly by the SEC as deals where other than accredited people can get in. The really weird thing about this is, is if you're sophisticated, which means you've got the educational background to prove that you know what you're doing, and you can prove that, and you can claim that you can get into these deals as not an accredited investor, but as a sophisticated investor. As a sophisticated investor, you are not accredited. So you can't do what accredited people do, but you can get into some of these deals by being sophisticated. But guess what? By getting in sophisticated, you're giving up all the protections you had by being accredited. Uh, and just like being accredited, you're giving up those protections because you're getting into a deal you don't really qualify to get into. And hence, if you lose all your money, it's your fault. So that's why the guy says, well, accredited investors, only accredited investors can get in. It's a new way to rip people off. No, it's an old way. It's been around forever. It is the way that they keep the weak 
away from the really dangerous deals. All right, next one here. It says, I recently joined LS Lifestyles and very excited about this. I have taken the single family and passive course, and I'm looking at passive investing in multifamily. My problem is most of my funds, approximately 350000 are now in self-directed IRAs, which allows me to invest in real estate deals. But by doing this, my cash flow will be nothing as all the money will go back into the IRA. I do have approximately 60000 in cash, but to take the money out will take a big tax hit, which does not seem like a sensible thing to do. All right. So when you look at this situation, what he's saying is, he could take his self-directed IRA and he could invest into syndication. The problem is all the proceeds have to go back into the IRA and he can't get them out of the IRA unless he pulls them out and pays taxes plus penalty if he's not 59 and a half. So he's actually losing money by investing into the self-directed IRA. People don't understand this. They have no concept of this and they have no concept of the fact that one other fact I'd like to make and that is the way to look at this is that the money must get taxed sometime. You really don't own that money or the income that it produces until you pay Uncle Sam for the taxes you owe on it. In other words, you got paid somehow. You made money. You stuck in an IRA to avoid paying taxes on it. You don't own that money. Government owns 50% of everything you own. They, they own this. income taxes anywhere from 15 to 42%. Social Security tax anywhere from 725 to 15.3%. And then state income taxes could be as high as 12% in California. So you could be taxed as high as 60 to 70% of your income, as low as 15 to 20% of your income. Because even if you're in the 15% tax bracket and 7% Social Security, that's 22%. 22 to 62% of what you have in that IRA belongs to the government. Same thing with a 401k, same thing with whatever other kind of tax avoidance vehicle you have. So the government won't let you have the income from it because you don't own that cash yet. Now, from the files of Del Wamsley. If you were a high school graduate, you would make more money than a non-high school graduate by X percent. But if you had just one year of college, you would probably make like $50,000 a year. Now, if you had a two-year degree, you'd probably make somewhere between 60 and 70,000. If you had a four-year college degree, you would make something like, you know, 70 to $100,000. Master's degree, you could make over 100,000, 150, you had a doctoral, you might make as much as $200,000. But the reality now is people used to go to school and get degrees that mattered. Now kids are just going to school because parents are trying to get rid of them. They're trying to get them out of the house. They're sending all these kinds of crazy kids to schools and colleges are taking them because they need quotas. And yet they're coming out with enough debt to keep them strapped for the rest of their life. My friends, the college system is about to implode. We'll be right back with the Dell Wong's Radio Show. Welcome back. Now, here's some more unconventional wisdom to set you free from the man on a mission to retire America, one person at a time, Del Wamsley. Welcome back to Del Wamsley Radio Show. Today, we're doing the emails out of the last week or two that I've received. And the last question we had was, um, you know, I'm looking at this money and investing it, but it's in my IRA. What should I do? 
If I leave it in the IRA, I don't have any cash flow. If I take it out of the IRA, I pay taxes. And I said, well, you just got to look at it. You don't really have that money until you take it out of that IRA. It's not yours. It belongs to the IRA, which is a government-held entity, really, uh, saying that we're holding your money for you until you decide to pay us taxes. Now, if you want to let that money become larger and larger and larger, then we'll let you go ahead and let it become larger within the IRA so that when you get ready to pay taxes, you pay more taxes. That's the only way you can look at it. So if I want you to think about it this way, if you're thinking about taking money out of your IRA, I want you to think about talking to your boss and your boss says, look, Bob, because what Sam, you know, basically says here is he's saying, look, I don't want to allow my, my income bracket to go up. Right. And that's the problem. It, uh, you know, if you take the money out and you're already making your income, you make 100 grand a year, you tax at 100 grand a year level. But if you take 100 grand out of your IRA, then you're taxed at 200 grand a year. So the concept is you're supposed to take the money out of your IRA once you quit your job and or retire because then you don't have income offsetting the taxes and you pay the same taxes uh, you pay. But the reality is you're going to pay the taxes. And so, you know, the discussion was, hey, you take it out a little bit at a time invest it a little bit at a time and you take the hit a little bit at a time and not jack your tax bracket up a large amount. That's a possible way to do it, right? Um, on the other hand, think about this. What if your boss came to you today and said, Bob, I'm going to give you a $50,000 bonus this month. Would you say, sir, please don't do that. Why, Bob? Because you're going to jack my tax bracket up. It's going to mess me up bad. Okay, well, Bob, I was going to give you 100000 this year. 50000 now, 50000 in the year. Please, boss. Don't give me that hundred grand. Do you know how bad that would mess up my tax bracket? Now think about it that way, and then you'll see how stupid it is to worry about taking the money out of the IRA. If you were dumb enough to put it in the IRA in the first place, dumb enough to put it in a 401k in the first place, and let a large amount of money accumulate under a tax rate that's higher than lower, and say, why do I say that? Because their lie is that at the end of your life, you're going to be in your lowest tax bracket. That's not true. At the end of your life, when you're my age, you're in the highest tax bracket you've ever been in. I'm in a higher tax bracket I've ever been in. It doesn't go down as you get older. It goes up, especially if you're investing. So it's a lie. So what you have to do is just unlearn the lie that they burdened you with. All right, let's see what the next one here says. First, I want to say thanks for giving me so much inspiration. I have been listening to your show for over two years now. Here are the facts. I'm 62 years old. Now, here's an interesting one. When we get into these ones where they start telling us their age, now they're looking at a whole nother variable factor, and that is, can I do this at my age, okay? So I'm 62, I'm working from home full-time and take care of my 88-year-old mother. I make $32,000 a year. After 30 years of marriage, I'm able to now think for myself. Divorced for five years now. He took everything and then some. I've, rep- I've repaired my credit. It's now 810, and I have no debt, and I have been able to save about $18,000. I've already signed up for lifestyles, but after listening to the case studies, I feel like I don't make enough to have enough to save. The last 30 years, I've been in prison, and I kept in isolation by my ex-husband, and I survived. I'm not looking for sympathy, but honesty. Can you help? Look. First of all, age. There's no age limitation to doing this. I'm 64 years old, and I'm still deeply invested in real estate, and more so all the time. I looked at two more deals last week and another deal today even. So, yeah, there's no problem about the age. Secondly, the problem, the challenge, if we call it anything, is the $32,000 a year of income taking care of your mother, 88-year-old mother. Now we get into the thing, okay, do we have enough income to debt ratio to be able to afford to go buy a rent house? With only $18,000, that's all she's ever going to be able to buy. 
right, is one rent house. And one rent house would be beneficial for her, both income-wise and tax savings-wise. But that's all she's going to be able to buy. And if she keeps that rent house and does it correctly and saves her money, it will be a, a marginal benefit to her. It'll be a good tax benefit to her, but a marginal income benefit to her because it's only one house. And then you've got this thing you now have to know how to deal with, which is a house, a rent house, right? And you're going to need to do that. Now, you work from home. So that's probably not a problem to be able to do it. So all in all, could she do it? Yes. Would it be the best thing for her to do? In this case, you get a 50-50 from me. And the reason why I say you get a 50-50 is because 50% of my brain says, you know, from what I'm hearing in this email, she needs to do something to prove to herself that she's a real human being that can do things. In that case, getting into lifestyles, finding out how to buy a, a rent house, buying a very small and expensive rent house with a small amount of money she has to work with, using a hard money lender so you can get in for that amount, which you can, by the way, get into a house for 18000 with the right deal, done the right way. We see it at case study almost every month, uh, so it could be done. And for those reasons, for her psychological reasons, I say yes. For her financial reasons, to use up all $18,000 of her savings, in one transaction at her age with her mother as being uh, a problem, that's a challenge, folks. I'd have to give this one a 50-50. And if it means enough to her, I learned something a long time ago. Whenever you tell people they can't do something, they're going to do it anyway just to prove you wrong. If it really means something to her to do something like that, then by all means, let's get her going. Next one here. I'm 49 years old, have three kids. I own a six-year-old small business that is service-based consulting product. I make about 250000 a year with it and have about a 30% profit. So I figured that out to be $75,000 profit. Now, don't know if that's 75000 after he pays his payroll taxes on himself or before he does. If he if that's before he pays his payroll taxes, then he only really makes $52,000 a year, which becomes relevant to how much he's going to need to be able to do something. I've had issues with debt when I look, took a $50,000 loan in 2016, massive monthly payments and defaulted. I also had an equipment loan, which is still under COVID grace period, no payment due. And I took my mortgage stay of payments, which turns back on in fall. So here's an individual that we want to look at their choice model. Their choice model is they work for themselves. They went into heavy debt to take that risk to work for themselves. And they can't pay the payments. So whatever it is that they took on, whatever their business is, a consulting business, whatever it is, service-based consulting business, um, didn't do well in COVID. So they weren't set up to be able to take on tough times. It goes on and says, in my assessment, I've been poor steward of my business and focus. There it is. The guy sums up the entire email with that. In my assessment, this is his, I've been a poor steward of my business and focus. I purchased a $7,000 program from Robert Kiyosaki in 2018, but totally lost focus due to an appropriate issue we had with our CPA. So there's two more issues. Wasted money on a Robert Kiyosaki program, which is really a ripoff in my mind, because Robert Kiyosaki doesn't even have a program. He sold his name to people who have a bogus, reworked, reused program that's been around for 30 years and is really no good at all. It has nothing but complaints. If you look it up on, on the Better Business Bureau and look up what the complaints are, it's high. High amount of complaints. Secondly... He had a bad CPA. And so he got in a lawsuit with the CPA. It looks like he said he left town. He left town, and we had to bear the brunt of an audit. Later, settling in legal agreement, we would not sue the parent company, etc. A big mess. Huge distraction. So here we go. He showed another lack in business skill, which is to pick a bad CPA. 
and to buy a program without researching it to find out that the Robert Kiyosaki program doesn't have a lot of positivity behind it, if any. It goes on, Dell, I do not want to work to eat. My friend, that's the only way you can eat, is work to eat. I've always wanted to get into real estate, and I know it's the tool for the, my long-term success. My dilemma, my credit is 600 There we go, another business problem. I have a little cash, and I have a home that is worth at least double what we owe on it, around, oh, about three eighty, dollars with about $200,000 in equity. That's an estimate. But that's it. We keep our expenses low, but I can't seem to break the low-income cycle uh, or know if we should do an equity loan for a rental property get into it. My wife has huge amounts of insecurity even discussing it, but I know there must be a path to this. Okay, now we run into another argument I run into all the time. Spouses tell me that their spouses are afraid of what they're going to do as far as investments. The only reason your spouse is afraid of what you're going to do as far as an investment is because they've seen you make bad investment decisions in the past, and that's why they're worried. My wife would never be afraid of me making an investment. Why? Because she's seen me make good investment after good investment after good investment. She was comfortable within my decisions. His wife is uncomfortable. She knows something we should know. He's already explained it to us. He's bad at business. Now more intel to build a better lifestyle from Del Wamsley. Every person I've ever met that was financially successful is easily approachable. And whether or not you have something stimulating or interesting for them to talk to you about is one thing. I can understand them giving you a colder shoulder, but they're still not unfriendly. Now you walk up to a bunch of gangbangers in a bad neighborhood, you're gonna get some trouble because these people are not happy people. They're miserable people. If you go up and down the socioeconomic bracket, I'll tell you this, let's just take middle-class people that get up and go to work every day. I dread that I will not take and go anywhere during rush hour, morning or afternoon because it's a nightmare, right? And because of the fact that I don't have a job, I can go where I want to go. I can set my appointments up when I want to go on them, right? We'll be right back with the Del Wamsley Radio Show. Welcome back. Now here's some more unconventional wisdom to set you free from the man on a mission to retire America one person at a time, Del Wamsley. Welcome back to Del Wamsley Radio Show. In the last segment, we're reading an email from a gentleman uh, 49 years old, married, kids, three kids, business, financial situation problems. It sounds desperate. I mean, I'll read it from the beginning, from the middle again. Uh, I do not want to work to eat. I've always wanted to get in real estate. I know it's a tool for my long-term success. My dilemma, my credit is 600. I have a little cash, and I have a home that's worth at least double I own. Uh, about 380 with $200,000 equity, but that's that's it. We keep our expenses low, but we can't seem to break the low income cycle or know if we should do an equity loan for rental property. My wife has a huge amount of insecurity even discussing it. All right, so we go down here and it says, the part I hadn't read to you yet was, I can probably come up with about five to $10,000, but being so far behind in planning, I feel we need to be cash flowing and changing our focus quickly or I will be too old to enjoy my family and dedicate time to things that don't bring me money. <sighs> this is the very problem, folks, is that people think getting rich is a quick thing, that there's a secret that it's going to happen overnight and that they just don't know it and they've made bad decisions along the way. And really, this is just 
this is a guy that's 49 years old that's acting like, in fact, he says, I feel like I'm priming for a perfect midlife crisis. I know I need to go all in on one or the other, but I need advice on the next several steps. I'm listening to you several months now and called to discuss with LU member on the financial classes available. Then learned I would ultimately be investing in either residential or multifamily, uh, needing anywhere between ten dollars and $50,000. I don't know if I could, should leap now or wait until we establish ourselves, which could take years. Folks, I'm going to vote this one the other way. What this gentleman really needs is he needs to do a self-assessment. I think he has, in this email, outlined his personal struggle very well. And he's outlined the things that he's done wrong along the way. The very fact that he lives in a $300,000, $380,000 home and doesn't have but five dollars or $10,000 to spend to invest, you have to ask yourself, Why? If I was him, the first thing I'd do is sell the $380,000 house, take the $200,000 and put it in a savings account, take five or 10000 and buy myself another home to live in that's a size we can afford. Then I'd take whatever's left of that $200,000, let's say one hundred fifty of it, and I'd start buying single-family houses. Not going to make you rich quick, but he's only 49 years old. I'm 64. That gives him 15 more years. And I'm still alive. I'm still doing stuff. And yeah, he's going to have to work. But it's going to grow exponentially. But he, he's trying to do it all at once. So if he goes out there and takes all that 200000 out of that house in an equity loan, let's say. And now he's got the debt on that house, which is wrong to do because he doesn't have the money to support that debt. He's only got five or 10000 bucks. Then he takes that money and sticks it all in one big, large, multifamily deal. And that deal doesn't work out that well. It doesn't pay that well. It's not going to give him anywhere near enough to be able to do what he wants to do, which is retire. So, no. I'm going to give this one a thumbs down. I think he understands where he's at. He needs to sit on the sidelines for a while, save up some money. And like I said, if he really wants to do something to benefit himself and try to get to a better situation, sell that giant home. He's living... A lie is basically what it is. I think his wife sees that. That's why she wants to keep the equity in the home. That's the one safety blanket in her mind. At least I've got a home with some equity in it. If everything else goes wrong, we've got some money to survive on. And she's probably right. Because remember, spouses don't distrust spouses unless they've seen reasons to distrust their decision-making process. And once you get that point where your spouse doesn't trust what you say about investing, there's probably a reason. The next email says, Dell, I'm planning on coming to the two-day this year, but I have no savings, and I'm curious if cashing out with a refi is a good way to get started. My wife and I make 140 grand a year combined. We bought our house years ago for 345000 and currently comps are selling for six hundred fifty to 700000 in North Austin. Now, guys, listen to this. He and his wife together make $140,000. And with that small amount of income, they bought a $345,000 home that is now worth $700,000. At 80% loan to value, we could pull out $170,000 or so. Our area is growing like crazy, and I expect the values to keep going up for another year or so at these rates. We have 2.875 interest rate now, and we have six months until we can do another refi since we just closed and refi two months ago. I believe we could afford the payments on 650000 as we don't live lavishly. Also, with the cost of Lifestyles membership, would quickly 
could one expect to retire starting with $130,000 to invest at multifamily? Or do you think single family would be better for us? Here we go back to that same thing we had earlier today. They got $140,000 a year income, which means they live on probably $100,000 a year, about eight, $9,000 a month. And they're trying to replace that with $170,000 of investment capital. It's just not going to get there very quickly. It's going to take a couple resurrections of deals. In other words, doubling that money in two years and then doubling that, you know, that gives you 340 and then double that again, 680. And it's still not enough. You're going to need to do it one more time. So it's going to take six years, five to six years for these people to get to that $140,000 a year combined income they're trying to cover. Or if they would just cut their cost of living. One of the ways they could cut their cost of living is not live in a $700,000 house. But they don't want to hear that. They are quite willing, and they don't have their age down here, to work hard enough to pay the payments on a $600,000 loan. They said, I think we can can probably cover $650,000 worth of debt. And they're willing to pay that interest on that. And I just don't think that's the right thing to do. Again, taking this thing too quickly, where the real problem in this family's cost of living is the cost of their home, the value and the cost of their home, and the fact that they don't have any other investments that produce income. They have mentioned nothing else about other income other than the equity in their house. So in my case, I can't see them going out there putting $650,000 debt on a house that they can't afford to pay for. Well, I hope this helps. Critical thinking is always difficult. But remember, it's not the money. It's the lifestyle. See you tomorrow. 